Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. Um, hey, well, let's uh, let's just form up right here around you know in a little circle. There's not many of us, and it'd be a good dynamic change, right? So if you guys wouldn't mind coming on off the comfy couch over there. Are we allowed to move the chairs? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So just yeah, let's just kind of get these out of the way, and then just. Seat open next to your wife. I sit with her every day, all day. Oh, okay. That's not true. I go to work oh, in the man. office. Wrong answer. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I shower. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You always want to do around with me. Or she sits with you. If you're, if they're able to, you know, not kill themselves, and you can join us, by all means. But if they can't, then I understand that too. Oh yeah, absolutely. No. Oh, Whatever you need to do. Ours are back there as well. You guys are going to Boston? Boston? <laughs> I have a It's too soon. I haven't even thought about packing. They were in their swimsuit yesterday. And I love Boston. I would live there tomorrow if Katie would let me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, ju- it's just quite a distance. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, it, it is. We went uh, for our one-year anniversary, and it was so good. And just it just strikes somewhere deep in my soul. There's there's really two things that feel like they resonate with the deepest parts of who I am, and that's England. That's number one, and then number two, by far, like by a good distance, but nevertheless, is Boston. Just the feeling that it evokes the history behind the place you know there's just a lot of yeah so you, you don't like the birds necessarily you like them. I was gonna say we saw like the tourist part of Boston I'm sure a residential area may feel a little different yeah, I'm gonna say it's a lot. there's some great brownstones in uh in Boston that would be pretty amazing like <laughs> you know the style I like do that in a brownstone Yeah. Did you know Tim's a colonial historian? I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. So we go to Boston. <laughs> yeah. Dude. I can tell you lots of cool places in Man. America that we like to visit. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, uh, my sixth grade trip, either we couldn't afford for me to go, which is the most likely, or it didn't happen that year. I don't, I don't really remember. Um, but yeah, I've never been. It's it makes me. I've been, you know, every year there's like a, her parents take, you know, their kids, obviously including me, on a vacation, like a family vacation, and so I've been jockeying for Boston 
for a while, but wow. nobody else seems to be as interested as I am. So, so sorry, not Boston. I'm in DC. Mm -hmm. I'm in DC. Is that like a national thing in sixth grade? Yeah. Go to DC? Uh, at least in Alabama. Really? Hmm. It wasn't where I grew up. <laughs> that was so many years ago. I don't think we had trips. No, yeah. we went to Chicago. Okay, we went to went to DC when I was in twelfth grade. Okay. Oh, I went to DC in tenth grade. Oh, okay. But that was my band. Your band? You're like marching band? Okay. Yeah, we played on the Capitol steps. Oh, that's cool. I forgot about that. I've been to DC many, many times. I'm sure you have. I just didn't remember when. When I did go in high school. Um, you guys ready? Yes. All right, would you like to pray for us this morning? Well, thank you so much for this morning. It's got the to, to kind of get together and talk about your word and talk about how it intersects with the world we inhabit. God, this is just an opportunity to better understand your good world and the good order that you created. I pray that you just uh, quiet the voices that you would uh, give us. Here to hear this morning. Yes, Jesus. Amen. Does everybody have a sheet? Yeah? Okay, good. Um, were you here last week? No. No, okay. Um, and for some reason, I, don't, I might have accidentally deleted the recording, um, and that's why it's not up. Uh, yeah, so when I went to, like, stop it, instead of stopping it, I turned it off, and I think that might have deleted it, so... Um, or, you know, maybe Jessica, you know, she has a lot on her plate, so she may not have had a chance to upload it yet, so I'll ask her today. Um, but good morning. Welcome to a clip, a clip. Let me try that again for the recording. Good morning. Welcome to Equip, um, where we've been talking about public theology. And last week we, in talking about, um, what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a human? What is it, what is human flourishing? We talked about two Big concepts, natural law and virtue ethics. Um, and so natural law has to do with uh, what we are, what is our nature, um, and virtue is what are we for. And so I took a good, well, I took the whole class to explain those two concepts. Um, and I'm just wondering if anybody, after thinking about it more this week, had any kind of questions or reflections on either natural law or virtue. Okay. Um, so, yeah, again, just the, the short synopsis is that natural law is about what we are. It's the nature of things. God created everything according to a set of blueprints, as it were. Um, and so things in the world work as they do because they were created by a rational being who is God. Um, and so things are not random. They don't happen haphazardly. Um, but we live in an ordered creation um, that has uh, corresponding relationships. Um, so you, you could look at um, chemistry. You could look at physics. You could look at mathematics. And all of those things work as they do and allow us to, um, to tap into them because there is a design behind them. And so um, that's what we call the natural law. Uh, and then virtue theory is the notion that 
um, you know, everything is made for a purpose and made toward an end or a goal. And so if we're going to understand human flourishing, we have to both know what we are and what we're for. And so we explained those concepts last week. And I didn't even get into the natural law piece to start to, my goal really when I set out preparing for last week was to just provide an overview summary of kind of the biblical teaching on what we are. And then I thought, you know, there's two important categories that we really needed to get our hands around in order to to do this. And that's where I, you know, talked for so long about natural law and, and virtue theory. Um, but now we're going to kind of get to the summary. Like we're going to bring together the last couple of weeks of, you know, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I'm probably leaving some things off. Well, I know I'm leaving some things off for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm. I'm probably leaving some things off, not just in general, which I know that's true, but maybe even from our discussion over the last couple weeks. Um, but I wanted to just paint a picture of um, what we would see being true in natural law, but that is communicated to us in the Bible. You know, so special revelation is scripture. That's what theologians call special revelation is scripture. It's like what God has revealed about Himself and His purposes, His plans, His ways in the Bible. And, um, and then general revelation is him revealing himself through nature. Um, now, you can't get saved by general revelation, but um, it is really, it is the theological category under which natural law exists. And what I want to do is bring the two categories together. And so I want to point out the overlapping um, area. Hey, come on in, Jacob. Um, I want to point out the overlapping area. Um, so where in special revelation uh, do we see certain things talked about um, that are a part of the natural law? And the natural law being, therefore, true of all people, so not just Christians. Okay. So this does not take into account sin. Um, that's next week, I think, uh, where we'll sort of talk about the effects of sin on creation. Um, but uh, but this is kind of, in a pre-fallen world, this is more or less a sketch of what that would look like, okay, for a person. Any questions? Come on in, grab a seat. Um, try to fit into the circle if you can. Yeah, so plenty of space over here. Yeah, come on into the circle. No one outside the circle. She sits by him all day. <laughs> all right. So, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, I did not print enough um, for everybody to have. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Good. Are we are we good? Anything we can make do? Okay. Cool. Well, I wanted to start with this quote from Tim Keller in a book called The Reason for God. Anybody ever heard of The Reason for God? Okay, it's a great book. Um, he says, in many areas of life. 
Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions, those that fit with the reality of our nature, natural law, and the world, produce greater power and scope for our abilities and a deeper joy and fulfillment. Experimentation, like science, risk, and making mistakes bring growth in any, any definable sense of growth. You can't say that something is growing unless you have an understanding of what the thing is and the different stages of its development, right? Um, and you might even assume like a virtue in there, so like a growth toward what? Um, experimentation, risk, and making mistakes bring growth only if, over time, they show us our limits as well as our abilities. If we only grow intellectually, vocationally, and physically through judicious constraints, so restrictions, like the right ones, why would it not also be true for spiritual and moral growth? Instead of insisting on freedom to create spiritual reality, shouldn't we be seeking to discover it and disciplining ourselves to live according to it. What do you guys think about that? Well, the first thing I thought about was spiritual disciplines. Mm -hmm. Because it sounds like that fits in that category mm -hmm. of what he's talking about here, in a way, mm -hmm. to help with growth. That's the idea of the spiritual discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, he's talking to a kind of a secular audience who... You know, many of them would have a whole bunch of different views about morality, but a lot of them would just say, you know, to each his own, you know, there is no absolute moral truth, and I create my own truth, and that kind of thing, um, and so I can live however I want, really somewhat absent of morality, and he's saying, you know, that's probably not a good idea, and it doesn't really work in all these other areas of our life, does it? And so why would we think that it would be good here in spiritual, moral areas? Anything else strike you from that quote? Okay. Um, so I wanted that to kind of set the stage for talking about, you know, our nature, uh, about natural laws that applies to us. Because, you know, a bigger picture here, and we're talking about human flourishing, is another way to put it is true, and I would underline that, true human freedom true human freedom. Freedom is not the absence of restriction, but it's the application of the right restrictions that fit with our nature and the world around us. So if we adopt a form of freedom that runs against the grain of the world we live in, then that's probably not truly freedom. You know, Keller talks about it like this, you know, um, in trying to demonstrate that, you know, freedom from um, or freedom from restraint is, is not actually freedom. He gives the example, a really simple example, of if you sit down in front of a piano. Anybody, any piano players in the room? Not very good. Not very good? Okay, I'm not very good either, but I, I play a little bit. Um, and I remember what it was like to not be able to play the piano. I would sit down, and I've heard music, piano music, that really stirred and moved me. And I wanted so desperately to be able to sit down and just have the freedom to reproduce music like that. And yet all I could do was make very, very uncomfortable and annoying noise that made people think, why did we buy him a, you know. Um, and what did I need? I needed, I mean, I technically had, you know, unrestrained freedom, 
But when I realized that actually the restraints of musical theory were the um, pathway to musical freedom and submit it to them, then I had the ability to start to approximate the beauty that I heard and was so inspired by. But in not submitting to really the laws of music, you know, the laws of harmony and harmonic, uh, harmonic resonance and, um, you know, uh, key scales and things like that, um, I was not in any, any meaningful way able to produce something that I thought that I thought tapped into the real the nature of things. That's what music really does. In in a very obscure, hard to put your finger on way, real music taps into something that is true, even if it is not, um, you know, uh, logical or rational. Um, it taps into something real about the world, um, and there are laws that govern that ability. Um, or in a love relationship. Um, in, a, in a true love relationship, it's not about having the ability to do whatever you want. That's not real love, but it is actually giving up for the other person that helps you to experience the unfailing, unfettered, truly robust love that can exist between two people because it's not based on anything that you do. So if we're in this relationship because you serve a certain need for me and then you stop serving it, then I'm out of it because I like my freedom above all else, then I'll never experience true love. But if I'm in this relationship and, the, and what defines a relationship is a fundamental commitment to one another despite what we do, then when... Um, I, you know, have the good moments with my wife and I think about even in that moment all the times I've messed up or I've hurt her feelings or I've, you know, done something hurtful to her and then yet I see in this moment that she's entered into this intimate relationship with me in this intimate expression, whatever that might look like, there's, that's the kind of love that you just can't, I mean, it far surpasses any sort of self-serving, it's all about me sort of love. And so the right kind of freedom there is not the absence of restriction, but it's the right kind of restriction. So, um, so that by way of introduction, let's look at like, uh, probably seven-ish different points here about what are we, um, what we are. So number one, we are a psychosomatic union. We talked about that a couple weeks ago of body and soul, each intimately tied to one another. Um, we have bodies that both, um, that have both needs and limitations. Um, and then I start to put something there. I forgot I had put it somewhere else, so you can ignore that. We have spirits and souls that have needs and limitations. So again, in the spirit of the Keller quote, the, the real quest for, um, human flourishing and human happiness is to, um, is to understand, ident identify and understand what those needs and limitations are of both body and soul and pursue those things which will provide for and help you stay within the needs and limitations, right? And so this becomes really relevant as we get into the different topics that we've kind of mapped out in this discussion. Um, but just laying the foundation here, 
we have to realize that our bodies and souls have needs and limitations that will manifest themselves really when we run into them and try to overcome them, try to, to sidestep them. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you guys? Um, uh, okay. Maybe. I, I'm just not following what this says. Maybe you explained it, but it says we're like God in our mental attributes. We pursue knowledge and produce knowledge, but God uh, doesn't pursue knowledge and produce knowledge. Uh, yeah, so that's the next thing. Okay. <laughs> we're hanging right. out there yet. <laughs> we desire to. All right, that's where I got confused. Yeah. Maybe I'm reading ahead. Sorry. You were. <laughs> that's all right. We're, we're getting there. Um, so we are like God. So we are a psychosomatic union. We are like God in our mental attributes. Um, and so we desire to pursue knowledge and produce knowledge because, so that's the implicit thing, because God is is or has all knowledge. He is a knowledge being. He's more than that, but he's not less than that. He is a being of knowledge. He knows all things, all things actual, all things possible, all things that have happened, all things that will happen, all things that are happening. God has all possible knowledge of all possible things. And by being made in his image, then we're not omniscient. But we do exhibit the desire to pursue knowledge because we, like him, are knowledge beings. Make sense? Yeah? So I'm wondering if, if we're thinking about the difference between like embracing cause and effect versus rejecting cause and effect. What do you mean? Um, where in, the, in embracing natural law, we submit to, the, uh, to the, the, the restrictions that we're talking about, whereas kind of, in some sense, rejecting that, and then in and then a, a source of discontent for a lot of people is kind of the notion that merely wishing for something is, is and should be sufficient to have that thing. That because you want something to fulfill you, it should. And if it doesn't, this is somehow somebody else's fault. Yeah, I think that is definitely a cultural um, phenomenon that is very ever-present right now. Uh, in my, at least in my estimation. Um, so, yeah, I think that's helpful. And that's part of why we're drawing this category out to help us to understand because we're going to run up against that time and time again. Um, uh, so we pursue knowledge and produce knowledge. Um, you know, and so he, one quote here by uh, a guy named Justin Barrett and a gal named Pamela King from a book called Thriving with Stone Age Minds, Evolutionary Psychology, Christian Faith, and the Quest for Human Flourishing. Um, they say, one thing that makes us human is our amazing ability to learn vast amounts of information from each other and use that information to address the, the demands and opportunities presented. Um, you know, this book is really helpful. I don't necessarily, at least at this point in my life, um, subscribe to the theory of evolution of theistic evolution, um, but lots of well-meaning Christians do. Uh, I think Tim Keller subscribes to a form of that, actually. Um, and so some of, the, some of the foundations of what they do in this book I don't necessarily agree with, um, but these are um, uh, social and evolutionary psychologists who are also Christians and who have written a book about human flourishing where they're trying to bring together scientific findings that are fairly settled, um, and uh, in theological um, categories, 
and sort of bring them together that way in, as it relates to human flourishing. So one of the things that they observed from the scientific literature is that, you know, uh, an aspect of human nature is our knowledge creation, uh, of our constant pursuit of knowledge, our ability to quickly ascertain knowledge and produce knowledge. Um, and so I'm going to, throughout, try to pull in some things like that, that just, you know, from a non-scriptural point of view, sort of um, continue to support and undergird the notion that, you know, you and I know because we love our Bibles and we, you know, read about these things and we're observant, you know, people as we just see that in the world. Um, so uh, we are like God in our mental attributes. We desire uh, to pursue knowledge and produce knowledge. Second, uh, to pursue wisdom and act wisely. So it's not just having knowledge, but everybody wants to apply the knowledge in ways that make their life better. You know, so um, you know, I gave the example I think a few weeks ago where you know, with little Lucy, um, you know, in our quest to get her to sleep through the night, which she's doing, praise God. Uh, we, um, we were constantly making the, these little micro adjustments to her schedule, the way that we handled her and, and uh, when we fed her and, and what we did to keep her awake or let her sleep when she slept, you know, all those things um, because we know that sleep is really important. And so we were in trying to gain knowledge about who she is as a person uniquely and then we were trying to apply that knowledge so that we could uh, get some sleep for everybody. Um, and, you know, if we went around the room, we could all think of ways in which the knowledge that we have gained throughout our lifetimes, whether specialized knowledge or general knowledge, we are in the constant pursuit of using wisely because God is wise. God has all knowledge and all power and is sovereign. And you put those three together and you get or that equals the wisdom of God. God always does that which is best because he has all knowledge, all power, and is in full control. Um, third, we desire to be truthful and not to be lied to. So every person across every culture throughout all of history has this as a marker of who they are in some form or another. Again, in a post-Genesis 3 world where the fall, you know, touches us all, this is going to look, you know, different for different groups of people and individuals. Um, but nonetheless, like, we all value um, not being lied to, and we generally don't like to lie to other people. Um, now, all of us do lie, all of us have lied, and all of us will continue to lie, but the way that you know that it's not something that we like to do is that we don't just traffic in nothing but lies. So that we are truth producing beings. And if we find someone who only ever tells lies, then they probably are in a, and I'm not being, this is not tongue in cheek, probably are in a mental institution because the wiring in the brain has gone awry to where they can't actually um, function in the correct way, right? But your average person you're going to see um, not be a total liar, even if they have been so affected by the fall um, that they lie a lot. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? Um, with reference to, uh, to the human goods, we see yet another convergence concerning the two primary normative rules that all human societies require for their stability, non-malfeasance and honesty. 
Research in sociobiology demonstrates that prohibitions on murder would evolve due to kin selection theory and considerations of reciprocity. No society can tolerate the indiscriminate killing of its members who contribute to the well-being of the community. Again, a primary concept of natural law is that murder is prohibited on the basis of the good of the community. Now, most of that talked about murder, but he started talking about um, that, uh, that uh, non-malfeasance and honesty. Um, and then fourth, we are like God in our moral attributes. So we desire to be just and treated justly. Nobody likes to be treated unjustly. And generally speaking, we try to just treat people with fairness. Again, there's gradations of that across all people, across all societies, across all groups and cultures. And, but generally, there, you can see the, the kernel here in, in everyone. Um, we are like God in our moral attributes because we desire to be good and receive goodness. Um, so not just being treated fairly, but we like to be treated kindly. And so especially when we're treated kindly, we tend to treat others kindly. And then third, we pursue peace and promote order. Um, because God is a God of peace, um, we like to live at peace. Um, we like to be uh, unmolested by others, right? Um, and generally, again, generally, let's just put that caveat on everything. Generally, um, we will uh, treat others in, the, in a similar fashion. Uh, we are also like God in our relational attributes. So we desire to love and be loved. Um, so um, one person said here, uh, 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 Dr. Summer Allen, who wrote an article um, on UC Berkeley's uh, website um, for their social psychology department. Um, she said, the brain's reward system, for example, is similarly activated by maternal and romantic love. A study by Andreas Bartels and Samir Zeki used a MRI to measure brain activity in mothers viewing photos of their own child, another child they knew, their best friend, and other adult acquaintances. The findings suggest that viewing a photo of their child or their best friend activated overlapping regions of the mother's reward system, as well as some distinct brain areas. It also led to decreased activity in brain areas involved in social judgment and negative emotions compared to viewing photos of people they merely knew. So again, just another sort of outside theological, not a, a non-theological source, but a scientific source saying that even like our bodies, our brains are hardwired for these type of character attributes. And that's where we, again, we go back to we are the psychosomatic union, right? So we're the psychological and the physical that come together intimately linked to one another. And so while character is a function of the immaterial, the spirit, you know, your, your, your heart, if you will, your soul, your moral capacities, they are also linked to your body, which we can see manifested in things that they're observing as they um, watched a mother look at photos of her own child, a child that she knew, a friend, and blah, blah, blah. They could see the neural pathways lighting up in different and unique ways that were made that way, right? Um, we were made for that. We were made to love and be loved. We're also made to live in varying levels of relational intimacy with varying others, if you will. And I say others because anytime you come into contact with someone who's not you, they are in a real sense an other. I know we sort of make that word a, a bad word in certain you know, like areas, 
But I think there's something beautiful about, you know, redeeming the word other because it recognizes that people are not the same. And to expect them to be the same is ridiculous. It's actually the beautiful thing is that in seeing the other, we become more ourselves. We cannot be ourselves until we come into contact with someone else. That is how God made us to be. And so the alien that lives outside of us actually helps refine us and transform us and become something better than what we were before. And that starts with Christ. I think most deeply, most fundamentally, engaging the other. But then it also manifests through his people and through people in general. Um, you could look at something like marriage as an example of these kind of intimate relationships and the, the coming in contact with the other. Um, sociobiological research also seems consistent with natural law ethics with respect to sexual norms. Since humans have a natural drive to reproduce, rules necessarily apply to the issues of how and with whom this activity takes place. In human societies, marriage plays the mediating role. From the standpoint of natural law, marriage functions for three purposes, procreation, raising the young, and companionship. Since marriage has these three purposes, it follows that specific behaviors will be prescribed while others will be prohibited. Because procreation is so critical, marriage serves an important cultural function in regulating sexual activity. Promiscuity is forbidden by natural law as it undermines the paternity of the child, which would result in males failing to provide for the children. That is, if women engage in sexual relations outside the bonds of marriage, men will not have the assurance that the child who is born will be theirs and not another's. Thus cultures, develop, develop, thus, cultures develop and enforce specific behaviors regarding sexual reproduction. Now, again, not every culture will have the same sets of rules and behaviors, but you'll still see kernels that are consistent across all cultures when it comes to sexual um, relations and marriage um, as an institution. Um, it's no accident that marriage is an institution that has been in just about every human culture throughout human history, even if it looks a little bit different. Um, that then takes us to, um, we all seek to empathize and be understood. Um, so, uh, again, uh, Summer Allen says, a study by neuroscientist Tor Wagger, uh, and his colleagues found that we have a brain circuit dedicated specifically to empathic care, the positive motivating feelings that drive us to help others in order to relieve their suffering. So the interesting thing about that, number one, is, again, this is scientific validation of something that theologians have known for a long time um, that is built, this is built into our brains. But the second interesting thing about that is I just imagine, okay, so Katie and I for months have been trying to make it through the first episode of The Chosen and have not been able to get through the first episode. Have anybody watched The Chosen in here? Okay, some have, some haven't. Well, we tried, and it was so boring. I'm just like, I'm just being honest. Um, but, you know, everyone kept telling us, it's so good, it's so good, you got to watch it. And I had my levels of doubt and skepticism because I've seen a lot of Christian movies that just, you know, were subpar, you know, production-wise, we'll just say that. Subpar act acting-wise, we'll just say that. This, you know, looked like it had some pretty great production value, but I just couldn't really grab onto the story. Well, we finally finished a couple weeks ago that first episode. 
And now we're like knee deep into season three. And we're, we're like, every time we get a chance, we're like, we're like binge watching The Chosen. It is so good. Um, and one of the things I love about The Chosen, and this is dangerous too, especially if you don't know your Bible super well and don't read your Bible very much, but just, you know, obviously they're bringing to life some of the facial and emotional cues that Jesus might have had in certain relational encounters. Um, so I love the theological imagination that they are putting on display. They're, they're asking really deep theological questions. Is like, what would it have looked like? I mean, what they're doing to create the show is they're they're reading the text very carefully, like very carefully, and then they're asking for the details that aren't here. What would it look like to put details in that draw out what is here? That's really what they're doing, which is beautiful. They're, they're not trying to add to Scripture. They're trying to accentuate what Scripture is saying with all the things that Scripture just can't do by the medium that it is coming through, i.e. the written Word. Um, and so one of the things that I, I hope that, we haven't gotten there yet, but I hope that we'll get to see is when Jesus stood looking out over, I think it was over Jerusalem, and He saw the crowds coming His way. And do you guys remember what the text says about Jesus, what he said? It says he he looked out on them with compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd, harassed. Um, And and so he saw a population of people, his people, Israelites, Jews, who had for hundreds of years been, you know, exiled from their land, from their, you know, system of government, from their leaders, essentially. Um, and were living under Roman rule and had fallen to the bottom of the social ladder and, um, and longed for Yahweh to return, for the Messiah to come and to make all things new. And they were tired. They were tired not just for that reason, but they were tired for the, their own Jewish leadership who was heaping up on them burdensome traditions that were added to the law. They just couldn't possibly keep because of a whole bunch of different reasons. Money might be one of those. Um, food might be one of those. Things outside of their control, like they're being you know, lepers or you know, invalids or whatever else. And so the Bible says that Jesus looked upon them with compassion. And to have compassion, one in, in one sense has to have, to have the, at least to be able to have sympathy. Um, sympathy being that I can look at your plight and understand that it is difficult. Empathy being that I've been in your plight and have felt the difficulty. Um, and so I think Jesus' neural pathways were carved to look upon the other and have empathy, sympathy. I think functionally those would be the same here. And that would you know, bring up in him compassion. You, you see what I'm saying here? Um, and so we are hardwired to relate to others because we're not... We're not just individuals, you know, like individualism is helpful in some ways and in other ways it's really unhelpful because it makes us think that the world revolves around us, that we can do everything ourselves and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And that's just not true. We were made to live in community. And so, um, so yeah, uh, we are two similar but distinct varieties. We are male and we are female. Uh, and I'll be honest here, I did not have time to do the level of research that I wanted. And that's true for everything I've said up to this point, um, but for sure right here. So here, I'll just let you in. 
I, uh, I pulled up my good friend ChatGPT and, um, and I said, uh, what are the, I forget the exact question, but I essentially said, what are the consistent biological and physiological differences between biological males and females? Uh, and so it gave me stuff that I already knew to be true from things I've read before. Um, and I could have went a step further and said, can you give me a few sources for that? And it would have, but I didn't. Um, and it was so interesting, too, because it did this, but it also gave the caveat uh, that started to get into, like, gender theory and stuff like that, which was super fascinating. Um, so um, we are similar but uh, distinct varieties, uh, so male and female. So male, um, what does it mean to be a male uh, if we were going to look at natural law? Scripture is not as clear as one would want to be on this. So, so you know, males have certain genitalia and females have other genitalia, right? I'm just, um, and, uh, and then from there, you know, it's like we have stories about men acting and women acting in the world, but how much of that acting in the world in these stories is culturally conditioned? How much of it is... So the question is, how much of it is descriptive and how much of it is prescriptive? Descriptive of these particular women and men living in their world at their time and their culture versus how much of it is prescriptive that when I look at these women and men, I should act like that as a man and you, if you're a woman, as a woman, right? Um, There's not, most of it is descriptive. There's not a ton of prescriptive stuff. There's a little bit. Um... But there's not a ton, surprisingly. Well, I have a question, just oh. how we define male and female. Because I know our culture defines it differently. Yeah. So how are you defining male and female? Yeah, so... Is it just purely physiological? At the moment, what we're saying is that, um, is that we're talking about sex over and against gender. Um, so, you know, there are some very radical... Um, gender theorist who would go so far as to say that sex is not real, it is socially constructed, but they are very much a fringe in the scientific literature from everything that I can tell. And so it is, it is still the predominant view that sex is a biological category of the two kinds of human persons, male and female. One has one type of genitalia and one has another one has uh, one type of, you know, chromosomes and gametes and stuff. One has a, another. Makes sense? XX and XY. Um, I'm not a biologist, so, and I, I didn't take biology, so I don't remember all the which one is which. But I'm sure you guys are way smarter than me, and you do. Um, but I'm in the ballpark. You know what I'm talking about, right? That's, that's what we're talking about at the moment. That, because that's what it sounds like. We're describing yep. physical. We are. We are, but so we're, we're describing those things that then manifest in certain ways of acting in the world, okay? Um, that then have gender implications, I think. So when you begin to act as a male in the world, that's where you, you move over from the purely biological, physiological to the social, the gendered nature of existing in the world. And so what my claim is that there is actually a pretty significant, when you look at the, um, the, the literature on how men and women as sexes are built physiologically, they have implications for how they are built genderly. If you, I mean, that's not a word, but I'm just because I like to make things. Um, and so men demonstrate unique masculine proclivities. Now, there's always exceptions. There's always exceptions, but the 
far majority of men that have always been um, may be less likely to display emotions or more likely to express them through physical activities. Okay, so they may be less likely to express them, you know, like, oh, I just love you so much and you're so wonderful and blah, blah, blah. Now, I do that all the time. So, you know, so I'm, an ex- I'm already an exception to the rule. Um, but I will say that there is still yet a difference between me and my wife um, in when and how and to what degree we express emotions and what we express emotions over. And, um, and I do tend to um, express uh, lots of emotions with my guy friends through physical activity, through games, through, um, you know, doing things, actions, right? Um, and so men are more likely to express their emotions through physical activities. Um, they may be more prone to aggressive behavior and competition. Um, and so this is actually, you know, just a little bit of a side note, but this is where um, something like the emergence of sports in the history of the world um, as we become more civilized societies is so important to a civilized society because, you know, empirically men are more prone to aggression because of testosterone levels in their bodies. And historically, that aggression has been taken out against uh, people nearest them, women and children, and in wars, Okay. So battling in small clans for, you know, lands, like literally lands, uh, you know, so not, we're not talking about geopolitical nations. We're just talking about like a clan of a few hundred people that you still see this happening today in different parts of the world, battling for territory that's right next to them, okay? Um, and so men, instead of talking it out with the other men in the tribe, they just go and take it, right? Um, and so as we've seen historically, societies move to become more, um, civilized, we've seen alongside that the emergence of sports that allow men in particular to act out their aggression in ways that are healthy and directed in the set of a certain confines of rules. So like football, for instance, I'm not talking about soccer, I'm talking about like Alabama football, Roll Tide. Um, you know, football, you know, there's lots of people who wish that football didn't exist because of all of the, you know, concussions and things like that that, are, you know, genuinely ruin people's lives. Um, but it does play, among many other sports, a significant social good that allows men who are told just about at every turn that they're not allowed to be themselves, i.e. aggressive, which in certain areas is 100% appropriate, but then you're also telling them that one of the few places that they are, you know, encouraged to be able to be themselves, to act out and to healthily channel these innate urges, that they shouldn't do that either. You know, it plays a significant social good in society. You know, now maybe there's better sports other than football that are suited that men should engage in. You know, so that's that's all a good and healthy discussion. But the recognition that men are more prone towards aggression and that we as a society need to think very carefully about how we think and talk about aggression. You know, is that toxic masculinity? Or is it actually masculinity that needs to be healthily directed? Does that make sense what I'm saying? All right, so it's kind of a side note. It's a departure. But um, typically, uh, uh, men are typically physically distinct in anatomy and physiology. Uh, So body size and shape, for instance, men tend to be taller 
and have a broader chest and shoulders than women. Um, muscle mass. Uh, testosterone, which is present in higher levels in males, promotes the growth of muscle mass, resulting in greater upper body strength and larger muscles. So this is why it is, you know, such a hullabaloo in sports when you're talking about, you know, um, men who identify as women in terms of gender saying that they are, quote unquote, real women and they should be able to compete in women's sports. You know, I can appreciate that there are people who experience in their life this sense of dislocation between their physical body and their sense of self to where they feel like they are not male, even though their body says they are male, right? I can, I can really appreciate that. Um, I don't want to discount that phenomenon. I think that phenomenon happens in people's lives. Um, but to go all the way to the end of like, there is therefore no distinction between two types of bodies, I think is, I think it, I, I cannot get on board with that. I cannot get on board with that because just observationally and definitely empirically, men's bodies are really different than women's bodies because of things like testosterone and how it helps to build muscle mass. So even when men who have transitioned to be women um, are, you know, on, you know, part of that is, um, what's the word, um, um, you know, hormone therapy and stuff like that, and they're increasing their estrogen levels and lowering their testosterone levels, their bodies have already, if they've done it post-puberty, their bodies have already changed, you know, um, and so it will still make a significant difference. Their bone density, for instance, is another thing, is way uh, more dense than women's art. I'm kind of wondering, kind of in, in the current cultural moment, so to speak, um, about the extent to which we're we're effectively being told to pretend to pretend that information is not informative. So, yeah. so think about think about the sports thing. Just to imagine imagine that you were you were trying to make you're trying to build a basketball team. There's going to be a just a just a basketball team, and you could draw 12 players at random from all the players in the men's NCAA tournament. Or excuse me, you could you could draw it random from two buckets. One contains all of the players, the players in the men's NCAA tournament. The other contains all the all the players in the women's NCAA tournament. It seems to defy seems to defy reason that anyone would think that you would draw from the women's group if all you wanted to do was create a basketball team. That would win. That would win, right? Yeah. 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 No, I think you're right. Um, yeah, there. You could go across every sport and think about like someone like Venus and Serena Williams, you know, like the best of the best of female tennis players. Um, as amazing, as freakishly good as they are, um, they cannot compete. And they know it. They've said as much. They cannot compete against the, their, their version in the, in the men's tennis. They just can't. Um, and that's not... That's not like an imposed uh, inequity or unfairness. Um, it is a reality. Of, again, it's discovering those realities and embracing them, conforming to them, and saying, how can I best live within the right restrictions in my life? Um, and, yeah, I feel like I was going to say something else uh, along those lines. There seems, there seems to be something the world is sort of talking out of both sides of its mouth by on the one hand saying yeah, science right. is science is science. 
On the, on the other hand, like th this is very yeah. much like in, in 1984 when O'Brien wants it, Winston to embrace the fact, the claim that 2 plus 2 equals 5. That's right. Like the idea that Serena Williams is one of the best athletes, period, in the history of the world. That's just, that is, that's not true. Um, I mean, I think she is one of the best athletes in the history of the world. That is true. Well, in, 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 if you're talking about like top five. Okay, there we go. So, right, yeah. I mean, yeah. Obviously, you know, she's several standard deviations away from the mean by, by, any, yes. by any meaningful definition. But if you're talking about the elite of the elite of the elite, yeah, it's... Yeah, I, I was thinking, that's what I was thinking of. I was thinking of the Orwellian 1984, you know, um, you know, you're kind of told what to speak. You're told how to think. Um, and, you know, yeah, so... We can get more into some of that when we talk about gender when we get there. But well, it seems to me it's not so much what trumps science is personal desire. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and that that uh, a democratic society cannot long endure if that is the state of how one determines truth. Um, all right, we're almost done. Uh, guys, men typically, um, when you look at voice pitch, have a larger larynx. So this is a physical reality. They have a larger larynx, and vocal cords result uh, in typically deeper voices. All right, so when a guy goes through puberty, then it's going to happen that they have a larger larynx and larger vocal cords, and that deepens their voices. Conversely, Women, females, demonstrate unique feminine proclivities, so more likely to express emotions verbally and to seek social support. Um, they'll tend to experience higher levels of empathy and emotional sensitivity. Um, they're typically physically distinct in anatomy and physiology, so body size and shape tend to be shorter than men with wider hips than men. Uh, lower levels of testosterone resulting in less muscle mass and a lower upper body strength. And last, voice pitch. Smaller larynx and vocal cords result in typically higher pitch voices. Now, that's just a short, small sampling of the you know, myriad of differences between men and women. But they all have gendered implications, too, that we'll get to um, in the weeks ahead. So, um, so this was just, again, a summary kind of overview of some of the theological things we said when we looked at the Bible, uh, with the addition of some things that are more... Um, true empirically and that's just, that's part of how i say we were able to tap into the natural law to understand what what is part of god's design is by looking at some of the settled science around what we are at least until yesterday that is um so any questions i know aren't you a biology person mm -hmm. did i did i get did i get it in the ballpark at least <laughs> You're playing baseball. I'm playing baseball. Okay, that's. I mean, we're doing good on sports analogies. Was, okay. I, I did have some thoughts about this aggression behavior compensation because if you're not going to listen to science and the evolutionary ideal, I'm curious as to how we got to an aggressive society. It's like winners bias, right? The winners got the right to history because they're alive, and therefore they got to pass their genes down. So, are we a product of genes being passed down and the winners being proven correct? because they were stronger, bigger, killed you quicker? Or are we akin to a godly maleness of aggression and strength? That's where I started to get a little lost here at the tail end. Yeah, I don't know that I fully understand, but let me try, and then we'll, we'll dismiss, and then we can keep talking. Um, yeah, so, I mean, as I said, I don't necessarily subscribe to evolutionary biology slash psychology. Um, 
So I would, you know, first lean on what does Scripture reveal about us? Um, and then second, I would, I would look as a part of discerning that natural law is a theological category that is legitimized by the Scripture. Then I say, well, how do I understand or perceive natural law? Well, it's by looking, you know, again, we talk about physics, we talk about chemistry, we talk about math. These are all these kind of objective approaches to ascertaining the laws of the universe, as it were, you know, the, the you know, natural law of nature. And so when we have substantial scientific research that, you know, has demonstrated that men typically are this way, women are typically this way, then, and it doesn't contradict the Bible, I'm going to say I feel pretty good about that. Is a, that is a revelation of natural law type of thing. And so aggression, I think, is something that you see in Scripture that is typically, you know, demonstrated in men. Um, but I also see it in the world as well. Um, and then, yeah, so let me stop there and, and finish. Um, Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this discussion. I pray that anything that wasn't right or true would, you know, um, would just fall to the ground as um, we would just ignore it. And then that which was, was helpful, you would use, God. Um, help us as we gather together in worship today to um, experience your presence and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.